During the war of 1812, the United States Navy defeated the British Navy in the Battle of Lake Erie. And uh, the master commandant, uh, Oliver Perry, wrote to Major General William Henry Harrison the following words. We have met the enemy and they are ours. Now, Walt Kelly was inspired by that battle and the words of that uh, commandant. And uh, he coined a phrase to speak about another enemy for another battle. The battle against pollution. Kelly created a poster for a celebration of, of Earth Day in 1970. And Kelly's funny animal comic strip, Pogo, had the words, we have met the enemy, and he is us. Now the phrase, uh, we have met the enemy and he is us, has been used and reused and for various purposes. The Bible actually has some words to say to us that lead us in a similar direction. That is to help us realize that the enemy that we have to battle against is not merely others outside of us, is not even something else uh, near to us in our vicinity, but is actually within us. So this morning I invite you to open God's Word to Romans chapter 7. We'll be reading from verse 7 to verse 25. Romans chapter 7, uh, verses 7 through 25, as we are looking at the reality of the enemy within. Here's God's word for us this morning. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if we had not been, yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, 
I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know what I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me in asking God to bless the preaching of his word and our hearts as we hear? Let's ask God for his help. Father, we need your help. Thank you for revealing this word to us. Thank you for revealing to us about the ongoing reality of sin in our lives. Father, we pray that you would help me to preach this word with clarity and help us all to hear it. Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus. We ask this knowing that the spirit that you have sent is among us. So we pray that you would accomplish your purposes with this word in our hearts, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 7 is perhaps the most debated text in the book of Romans. The thing that Paul is saying in this text about himself may surprise some of us, especially after what he said in chapter 6, that we no longer serve the master of sin. Is Paul now contradicting himself here in chapter 7, especially at the end of chapter 7 when he says that with my flesh I serve the law of sin? How can Paul say this? As a Christian. And especially, how can he say it as an apostle? For these reasons and many others, Bible teachers have questioned if Paul is speaking here as Paul the Christian, or is he speaking as he was still an unconverted Jew, sort of reflecting back on his life prior to his conversion, entering into the skin of the Jewish people who thought they could live and obey the law of God as a means of righteousness. Now, there are pros and cons to these views, and there's actually a host of other views of how people interpret 
uh, this passage. I'm inclined to understand this passage as if Paul is speaking about himself, not about another. He's speaking about himself as a converted Christian. Now, if you want to push back on that and have the what about this or that argument, I'm happy to talk to you after the service. But I just want to let you know that at least at this point, I'm persuaded that Paul is speaking to us as a Christian. He's speaking to the mixed congregation in Rome where Jewish and Gentile believers were struggling to understand the, ro the role of, of the law for their ongoing Christian life. But in debating the role of the law for their Christian life, they, some of them at least were getting sidetracked about the real problem. The real problem was not the law, but the ongoing struggle with indwelling sin. So Paul in this passage is challenging us believers to be realistic about the battle with indwelling sin. That's the argument he wants to convince all of us of this morning. Be realistic about the battle with indwelling sin. Paul addresses two objections that he saw coming in verses 7 through 12, the first objection, and then a second objection in verses 13 through 23. And then he's concluding uh, this address uh, with some applications in verses 24 and 25. And each of these sections contribute to Paul's goal of helping us become realistic about the battle with indwelling sin. Here's the first point that Paul is teaching us in helping us be realistic about the battle with indwelling sin. Point number one, the problem is not God's law, but our sin. The problem is not God's law but our sin. And we see that in verses 7 through 12. Up to this moment in Paul's uh, reasoning throughout the book of Romans, in particularly this major second section from chapter 5 to this point in the book, to chapter 7, Paul emphasized the negative limitations of God's law. One could have concluded from uh, from Paul's reasoning, especially in chapter 6 and the first part of chapter 7, one could hastily conclude that God's law is bad. If, if God's law has all these limitations, why don't we just put it aside, put it behind us and not worry about, us, uh, about it? Some people who are all about grace have similar attitudes about God's law these days. Uh, there's a label for those who have this very negative feeling against God's law today. They're called antinomians or antinomianism. And let me explain that label. You may not know the, the name of the label, but it's fairly easy to understand. In the Greek language, the word for law is namos. So anti-namos is those who are against the law. Antinomianism is someone who is against any positive view of God's law for the Christian life. And those who, are, who embrace this reality of living life under grace become so 
so focused on that that anything that has to do with God's law must be negative. And Paul acknowledges that some people may walk away from what he has written in chapter 6 and the first part of chapter 7 with having a negative view of God's law. After all, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, Paul said that the Jewish people are no longer bound to the law, that they belong to another husband, to Jesus. So, should Christians just discard the law as bad? And Paul wants to correct this conclusion. He asks this question in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? And he answers right away. By no means. In verses 7 through 12, Paul unpacks why the law is not the problem. Even though it has limitations, the law is not the problem. How does Paul unpack this? Well, first he says, God's law exposed our sin. And that's a good thing. God's law exposed our sin. This is a positive view that all of us can continue to have about God's law. We would not have been aware of all our sin on our own. We, we needed God's law to help us become aware of where and how we have transgressed God's design and standard. And Paul gives us an example. He takes one of the Ten Commandments. Actually, he takes the last of the commandments. It's the one commandment that is not visible to the outside eye. All the other commandments in the Ten Commandments are very visible. But the last one is not very visible. It's a command against coveting. Paul says in verse 7, For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. And this is the goodness of, of God's law, that it provides us with a sure revelation of God's standard, of God's character, of God's will. We, we don't measure our lives based on what we feel is right and good. What we feel is morally right or wrong. God's law was given to us to fill up the gaps of our ignorance, of our moral ignorance. So, Paul says, God's law exposed our sin. And that's a good thing. But what did sin do once it got exposed? And this is where the thrill picks up. What did sin do once it got exposed? Sin exploited God's law. Sin exploited God's law. God's law exposed our sin, and in return, sin exploited it. Look at verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Do you see the language of sin seizing an opportunity? Paul repeats this phrase twice, both in verse uh, uh, 8 and then in verse 11. To produce more sin, sin took that which is good 
and created a negative effect on us. When confronted by God's law, sin creates more sin. This means that when God's law meets our sinful nature, we don't become more tame. God's law doesn't tame sin. Quite the opposite, sin reacts in more rebellious ways when it is exposed. Perhaps the best illustration of this is young children. When parents of toddlers begin putting boundaries and telling little infants and baby walkers and little ones that they're not allowed to do something, the more the parent puts the boundary, the more that child is set on crossing that boundary. And I ask, who taught that child to cross the boundaries? I bet there's no sane parent that would, would start taking joy in teaching his young infants to cross the boundaries that they are setting in place. And yet there's something in our human nature. As soon as the boundary is set in place, there's a thrill in that young human being to cross that boundary. Human nature, sin inside us, loves. It's as if that sin becomes alive and that kid goes straight for that boundary to cross it. That's what Paul means when he said, apart from the law, sin lies dead. Without the boundary, there may no be thrill in crossing that boundary. But as soon as the boundary is put, sin is activated and runs for it. If we glance at the verbs that describe what sin does, we get to see its awful character. Look at verses 8, 9, and 11. Notice what sin does in us. And let's bring this now not just to little kids, infants, and toddlers. Let's bring it to all of us adults because that sinful nature does not get any better as we grow into adulthood. Notice what sin produces. In verse 8, sin produced all kinds of forms of sin in us. In other words, sin multiplies, especially when it is encountered by God's law. Verse 9, sin brings us death. Sin changes our condition from life to death. Verse 11, sin deceives us. Sin is not an, an honest ally for us. It is not seeking our good. Sin's strategy is always, always to present one reality and then flip on us and deceive us. Uh, promising that there's no consequences for our rebellion. Reminding us and trying to entice us that we will be better off pursuing the path of sin. But sin deceives us. There's no security. There's no safety with it. And verse 11 ends on this note that sin kills us. And sin kills us through the commandment. Again, 
the commandment of God contained the promise of life. Read Leviticus chapter 18. But when the commandment was transgressed, the commandment brought death instead. So when sin, when sin deceives us, it takes that which is good and turns it to be the agent for our destruction. If sinners are sentenced to death, it's not God's fault. It's not the fault of God's law. The fault lies squarely with our own sin. Have you ever heard people excuse their sin and say something like, the devil made me do it? Well, friends, Paul would not agree with that statement. It's not someone outside of ourselves that is a problem for our death sentence, for our going into sin. Sin inside me deceives me. My sin brings death to me. My sin kills me. This is Paul's description of what sin does. So Paul concludes this about the law in verse 12. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So friend, do you have a positive or negative view about God's law? Just because our salvation does not come through the law does not mean that we now get a free pass to think poorly of God's law. Just because God's law has a limited role and just because some people misuse God's law for self-reliance does not mean that we should have a poor view of God's commandments, of God's law. Paul's point is to challenge the people who got so tangled up in debating about God's law and who saw so many problems with God's law that they actually got sidetracked in that debate about the law and they, they did not realize the problem lies not with the law but with sin. Today, some Christians can fall in similar traps fighting against certain theological issues, debating certain theological issues, but becoming blind to their own, their own sin problem. There are Christians who are so concerned about theological issues that they lose sight of the battle with their own sin. Friends, are you the kind of person who gets drawn into theological debates but lose sight of your own sin? Paul here wants to show us that the real problem is not God's law or even how you view God's law. God's law exposes our sin. Sin exploits God's law, deceiving us and using God's law to kill us. Sin is a problem. But in the second part of this passage, Paul moves on to show and expose sin's deafness and nearness. Sin's problem is its deafness and nearness. And we see this in verses 13 to 23. 
Again, Paul continues dealing with the objections that his audience or some people in the audience may have had. This time, some people may have concluded that God's law is actually responsible for our death. So Paul says in verse 13, Did that which is good then bring death to me? Again, by no means. The culprit for our death is not God's law. Friends, we cannot blame God for our death sentence. We cannot blame God for our death sentence. Instead, Paul shows us two characteristics about sin. Sin is beyond, is so sinful that it's beyond measure. Sin is sinful beyond measure. Look at verse 13. Paul says, It was sin producing death in me through that, through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. This is why sin is sinful beyond measure. Because it took what was good, what was holy, what was righteous, and produced in us death through that very commandment. Remember 9-11? When hijackers got a hold of the planes, control of, of the cockpit, and flew the plane into the Twin Towers. The planes were the vehicles through which the hijackers brought death to all the passengers. The planes were not the problem. The planes were good. They were functioning as they were supposed to. But hijackers took control of the cockpit. Now, friends, the big difference between the hijackers and sin is that sin did not do it by force as the hijackers did to get control of the cockpit. In the case of sin, sin does it by deception. And once it deceives us, it no longer does it by force. For sin to bring us death for the very commandment of God shows that sin is sinful beyond measure. In other words, we cannot plumb the depths of sin. We cannot measure its depth. We cannot fully see its limits. Oh, friends, think through other good things that sin turns something good and turns it into bad. Tur sin turns a marriage relationship into an idol. Sin turns money into a master. Sin turns work into identity. Sin turns our families into a source of significance. Sin turns even church and membership into false security. Sin takes that which is good and brings us death through it. 
Well, friends, sin in its measureless nature knows no bounds. And if sin can take something as good as God's law and deceive us and use God's law against us, Oh, friends, how much more other things in this creation that are good, yet they can become a snare if we allow sin to roam freely through those realities. Friends, sin is deceitful beyond measure. This is what Paul wants to warn us about. But there's another facet about sin that Paul wants us to see. Not only its depthness, not only its measureless nature, Paul wants us to see sin's nearness. Look at what Paul says in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now this verse has puzzled interpreters. How can Paul say, I am of the flesh, sold under sin, when in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 6, Paul said that we are no longer enslaved to sin. Paul contrasts here God's law with ourselves. God's law is spiritual. It belongs to the realm of spiritual things. But we are made of flesh, and our flesh remains under the influence of sin. In Christian conversion, God changes our inner beings. God changes our hearts. God changes our minds. Our hearts and our minds have been renewed by the Spirit of God when the Spirit of God comes into our lives. But the presence of sin is not removed from our flesh. The bondage of sin is removed from our hearts and our minds, but the presence of sin is not removed from our fleshly nature because we continue to live in this body, physically speaking. So in verses 15 through 17, Paul is telling us of a new conflict that now arises in him between the mind, between the heart that has been renewed and the flesh, between his affections that have been changed and his physical flesh. Notice how Paul described his actions in verse 15. He's acting the opposite of what he desires. And notice what he desires in verse 16, that his desires are in agreement with God's law. In Paul's inner being, a change has taken place. Paul desires now to side with God's law. And Paul concludes that God's law is good. And yet, his actions are opposite of what he desires. So Paul concludes that sin still dwells in him. Sin remains in his flesh. That's how near sin is in our very members of our body. When Paul concludes in verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, Paul is not trying to excuse himself. He's not telling us that he has some sort of spiritual multiple personality disorder. He's simply telling us that while his mind and heart align with God's law, 
there is still another part of him called sin. And it still dwells in him. That's how near sin is. Sin is in us. Sin remains in us, even as Christians. And yet, as a converted believer, Paul's identity is no longer defined by his sin. That's why he says, it is no longer I who do it. This is not about the multiple personality disorder on the spiritual realm. Paul is saying to us, I no longer want to identify with my sin. Sin no longer defines who I am. Yet still sin remains in me. Only Christians can speak this way. Only Christians can live out this experience of seeing their identity changed to say it is no longer I who do it. And yet, at the same time, without being naive to assume that sin is somehow no longer present in us. Paul dwells some more on this reality of indwelling sin. He explains this conflict in verses 18 through 22, and he repeats the ideas again. There's a distinction between the desire and the ability. The desire lands squarely and sides clearly with God's law. The desire wants to do what is right. It's the execution, the ability that still lags behind. I love how one Bible teacher put it beautifully. Sin has a constant willing ally in the body. Sin has a constant willing ally in the body. The enemy within is sin, which remains dwelling in our flesh, in our human nature that's been corrupted by sin from the very beginning. Now, it's important for us to recognize and to clarify what Paul means here when he says, the evil he does not want to do, he keeps doing. He's not doing things that disqualifies him from ministry. This is not the evil actions of, let's say, murder or sexual immorality. Otherwise, Paul would still be, would, would be disqualifying himself from ministry. Paul's battle with sin is not over those dimensions. Yet, he sees the evidence of his indwelling sin inside him and the battle within his own heart. For example, the commandment that Paul brought up, uh, of the commandment of not to covet, no one would know if Paul falls into that sin. And yet, even if the sin that Paul is battling with would not be visible to others and would not disqualify him from ministry, he still calls it evil. And he still calls it out as a battle that he is battling against. Paul describes it as an evil that he intends not to do, yet he fails to do. Uh, In the fight with indwelling sin, it's also helpful to notice how Paul describes the object of his delights. 
In verse 22, Paul says that he delights in the law of God. That he delights in his inner being in this law. So the struggle with sin that he's speaking of is not the struggle of the person who lives in sin because he delights to live in sin. Someone could take a passage like this, like Romans 7, and say, well, if this is true, then we should never engage in public discipline. We should never engage in confronting sin in one another because this is part of what we all do and experience. Well, friends, I think it's important for us to realize what Paul is saying here. His heart and inner being continue to delight in God's law. The struggle against sin is active in him. He has not dropped the fight against sin. Paul recognizes that this struggle that he deals with is a struggle in who is a struggle in which the heart and the inner being continue to cling closely to God's word. And yet, even when that's the case, Paul says that he sees another law in him. And this law is not, is not the written code. This law is that principle that he cannot get rid of. It's the law of his members that continue to be corrupted. It's like the law of gravity that you cannot get rid of, no matter how, where you go on this planet, on this earth. Unless you go out of space, the law of gravity is going to be around you all the time. You can try to ignore it, but only to your peril. In a similar way, Paul says, I see in my members another law, another principle, another force that I cannot, I cannot ignore. Oh, friends, consider the reality of what Paul says here, that sin is sinful beyond measure. Sin is the problem in its depthness, being sinful beyond measure, beyond our ability to comprehend its limits. It pervades everything. It's all over. You cannot run away from it in the sense of its presence. And yet it's also so near inside us. This leads Paul to the final moment of this chapter. So what do we do? What does Paul do when he realizes that, that the law of God is not the problem, that sin is the problem, and sin is so problematic because of its deafness and its nearness? The solution that Paul finds is soberness and gratitude. Soberness and gratitude. Look at verses 24 and 25. The present fight with sin does not, Paul, does not turn Paul to say, oh well, this is just the way it's going to be. I don't need to beat up myself. I just need to enjoy the ride. I just need to accept this is the reality. Oh no. Look at how Paul reacts. He's not becoming flippant over his sinfulness just because this battle with sin rages on in him. Paul says in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I call this reaction in Paul soberness. 
Friends, there's a sense in which our constant battle with sin should drive each of us to see our ongoing wretchedness. Not hopelessness, but, but this sense of soberness. This is why when we confess our sins to the Lord in our weekly Sunday services, we're not afraid to call sin to be sin and seeing our pitiful state. Paul's soberness is also seen in how he concludes in verse 25. He says, So I myself serve the law of God with my mind, and with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Again, he is not conceding here uh, that the battle is going on and he's just, he can be flippant about it. There is a sense of urgency. There is a sense of seeing uh, a pitiful state in his sinfulness. But it's a soberness. It's a sober reality. In his soberness, this man realizes that the battle with sin is not over in him. That's soberness. But the soberness of ongoing wretchedness and fight is kept in tension with the hope of deliverance. That's why it's not a just full-fledged hopelessness and darkness. Notice the, the hope of deliverance. Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. God has already brought a change in Paul, in his mind and heart through Jesus Christ. The change of serving God with a mind and the heart in the inner being is irrevocable. And yet Paul is looking forward to a day when that change will also experience its full climactic reality also in the body. A day will come even for his body of death when it will be delivered from the ongoing presence of sin. Paul tells us about that future day in chapter 8 verse 23 when not only his body that is groaning will be delivered, but all creation that is awaiting for that future consummation will also be delivered. But until that day comes, Paul is yearning and looking forward to Jesus. And he does it with gratitude for what God has already done in Jesus Christ. So friends, consider how Paul reacts and responds to this battle within him. A battle with sin. Sin is not, the law is not the problem. Sin is. Ask yourself, are you aware of the ongoing battle with sin inside you? Not inside other people. All of us are way better to detect that battle in the hearts of other people. But our radar does not function very well when it's time to examine and see that ongoing battle with sin inside us. Do you fight sin with a soberness that the battle with sin in your life is not over yet? Or do you tend to blame God for your failings? 
or to blame other people for your failings. Friends, do you tend to turn a blind eye to your own sin struggles? Consider how our relationships would be different when we deal with conflict with one another, whether it's in friendships, church relationships, even family. And when two people who are in conflict with one another would start the conversation, wretched man that I am, instead of saying wretched man that you are. Imagine if in our conflicts, we would treat the other with this sense of our own personal wretchedness. Uh, in one of the marriage books, When Sinners Say I Do, uh, the author encourages couples to recognize not only that they are marrying another sinner, which can help them adjust their expectations, but also to recognize that the one who is getting married is a sinner himself or herself. And it so changes the tone of the conflict when people recognize and start with this posture, oh, wretched man that I am. Well, friends, I started this message by stating that Paul's primary argument for us today is to be realistic about the battle with indwelling sin. Here's another way that we can summarize what Paul is saying in this chapter. The fight with sin is not over until the end. The problem is inside me. The solution is outside me. So keep running to Jesus, longing and yearning for him to come, waiting for that day to arrive. But until that day arrives, have this soberness while you keep your heart and your mind vigilant to serve the law of God, to, to delight in God's word, recognize that the first battle line for us to battle is right here at home. We have found the enemy, and the enemy is within. May God help us. Look to Jesus with soberness, and with gratitude. Let's pray. Father, thank you for opening our eyes to see that the reality of your redemption is a reality that has accomplished truly a change in our inner beings, in our hearts, and our minds. And yet also, you have opened our eyes to recognize the reality that sinful flesh, sinful corruption of our flesh remains with us, dwells in us. 
and we long for the day when Jesus will return. Until that day comes, Father, fill our hearts with soberness and with gratitude that you alone are able to do what we could not do of ourselves. So, Father, help us in Jesus to look confidently, hopefully, and with soberness. Lord, we pray that as we prepare our hearts to partake of the body and blood of Christ symbolically in partaking and participating in the Lord's Supper, that we would be reminded that the battle against sin, you have, you have started it and have broke the bondage for it. And Father, as we remember of what it means to belong to Christ, help us to reclaim and restate once again our battle against sin and our confidence that in Christ our hope is certain. Father, we pray that you prepare our hearts to continue to fight sin and cling to Jesus, no matter how long drawn this battle is. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.